0: Welcome to CFO Insights, the leading podcast for finance professionals in disruptive tech brought to you by the startup CFO community. I'm Guy Hutchinson, and I'm the host of the podcast, as well as being a tech CFO. In this episode, we're going to talk to Mitch Fasanya, founder of Searchland and also Fanbytes. we love to have a founder guest on our podcast as so many of our CFO members report into them founder stories always resonate. And in this one, Mitch takes us through the critical world of startup pivots with brilliant real life examples from his most recent ventures. We capture some deep insights on moving fast with platform decisions, when to stay lean and what he'll be looking for in his first finance hire. Mitch, welcome to the podcast.
1: Great to be here. Uh, Thanks a lot for having me on. Really excited to, to get into all of this.
0: No, that's all right. I mean, um, so we were talking last week because I I I I'd heard your name and I'd heard about Fanbytes, obviously, and I happened to stumble across Searchland because I was looking for a product that did that type of thing, uh, and looked at your background on LinkedIn and realised immediately that you'd had a really amazing entrepreneurial journey from, from from really early on uh, and we love to get founders on the show because a lot of our CFOs and FDs are working directly for founders uh, and so you know really excited to have you here and to hear a bit more about the kind of businesses you've been building.
1: Yeah sure uh, I mean I'll kick it off with a little bit of background just about myself. Um, yeah so my, my main interest has always been in business. Um, started from a really early age, um, probably about 12 or 13, I remember kind of a distinct memory of mine is uh, I wanted to go to the cinema and uh, my mum had said, yeah, you can go, but you've got to pay for yourself. And at the time I had one of those, um, one of those coin boxes where it would count the amount of money you had in there, ones and two p's. it would count it all up for you. And I remember looking and it was had about £3.40 in it and the cinema ticket was £5. (laughs) And that was kind of the first moment where I was like, right, I need to make some money. Um, So that's when business kind of really became an interest for me. Naturally, I didn't do much when I was 12 or 13, but the first thing I tried to do was just sell things on Amazon and eBay, You know, buy things from AliExpress, which is actually now a, a massive business. Loads of people do that. Um, but I started it very early on, um, had a little bit of success, didn't blow up or anything like that, but really got me going. Um, and then that's when I kind of discovered coding. Um, yeah, around the same age, like 13, as when I started, 12 or 13 is when I started coding. And that just became a vehicle for me to, to get into business. Um, so you know, my first success wasn't until I was about eighteen, um, with a, a company that sold and um, basically a data business at the time. But for me, it was all about building a company, and then coding was a vehicle for me to do it. And I just happened to kind of love coding, which was obviously amazing. Otherwise, probably would have been a much harder journey.
0: Yeah, it's really, really fascinating because it's almost, it's almost like your your lesson there is. if early on, you or perhaps even your son or daughter, uh, obviously are interested in building businesses, Uh, help them to find something practical, be that coding, be it buying and selling like you would be as a kind of retail operation, find find something really, really, really tangible, they can learn and just deploy quickly and explore that entrepreneurial side of of themselves.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I highly recommend it. I think it has really shaped basically my, my entire life from that moment, um, affected what I did at university, I ended up studying computer science. Um, I mean, we have another debate about whether that was worthwhile doing or not, but you know, it really did change my my entire perspective on life and what I wanted to do in the future.
0: Yeah, because because a lot of people kind of a lot of entrepreneurs have have, you know, have been at uni. Uh, and of course, there's, there's the famous dropouts as well. There's the, you know, the Bill Gates, etc. Uh, but I think one thing it often is it, it it allows you to not just learn a discipline, like your course, but you build this cohort, this, this peer group, and that peer group often helps to shape who you are, and shape your ambitions for the things you might do in the future.
1: Yeah, definitely. I, whenever I, I speak to people about um, university, specifically, it's the social aspect is kind of the key side of it for me. Um, for most people, it's their first time away from home. You're learning how to look after yourself, learning how to make new friends. Um, so many different things that you're learning there beyond just the education side of it. So, yeah, I mean, f- for me, that's the main takeaway I got was, yeah, building that network and just learning more about myself.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And and, and um, what, what point in your early career did what became Fanbytes suddenly become a thing that you were drawn towards? Like, how, how did that idea build?
1: Yeah, so uh, I mentioned uh, a second ago the data business I started when I was um, 18. That was uh, uh, called Jason Who Is. It basically sold domain name data to cybersecurity and marketing firms and started doing that pretty much just before I went to university and ran it while I was at university and ended up exiting or selling that business um, during my, what well, towards the end of my first year, start my second year. And around the same time, obviously, I built a bit of a name for myself. We were talking about that network. And I got introduced to um, a friend of mine called... Well, a friend of mine introduced me to a guy called Tim. Um, Tim was one of the other founders of Fanbytes. Um, and another guy, Ambrose, was also one of the founders. Got introduced to them and basically got pitched the idea that they were already starting. So. They had previously been doing something around social media with you know events and sending people to social stars and meeting up with them etc and they wanted to start a influencer marketing agency or influence marketing platform and didn't have any a technical co-founder on board so that's why they wanted to, to bring me in so it wasn't my idea or anything but it was super exciting and i had been spending all of my time working on my own on this previous business before so i was really excited about the idea of working with co-founders and doing something new um, and obviously I was young and I used all these social platforms that we were talking about. So that's what kind of drew me to it and what got me involved.
0: And that piece where founders, you know, collaborate. So it's you, Tim, Ambrose, uh, how, how conscious were you at the time? Because you were coming into the, the, the third founder, it would seem, um, how, how conscious were you that, that, that as a group of founders, you need to all be bringing something different. It needs to be a complementary nature to your skills and your experience.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that in this day and age, having a technical co-founder on board in any business is just a, a huge plus. And um, obviously depending on the type of business you want to build, but typically you'll have a digital element or some something to do with online or an app or whatever it might be. Um, so for me, kind of my value proposition was pretty clear. I assume it was to the other guys as well, otherwise they wouldn't have wanted to talk to me in the first place. But yeah, we all worked quite well together. Fortunately, I mean, it, I, I met these guys in the summer between um my first and second year of university and within about a month we were working together on a business which sounds crazy when you think about it um and mostly we'll probably not recommend you do that until you get to know people better um but luckily it, it seems to have worked out in the end
0: yeah that's fantastic I mean, I mean um you know it's a insanely young and talented team right And 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 it sounds like you were kind of in the right place at the right time it was the right area to attend to there was probably a lot of growth in influencers on social around about that time and you know part partly because you were in that demographic right um you probably had a quite a unique opportunity just just to understand how how big that market would be
1: yeah i mean we were around the time of you know the rise of lad bible and uni lad the big facebook pages so we'd seen people build you know, large businesses on social media and this was kind of the next step was to to utilize other people's audiences to promote your products you know something people have been doing for years and years but using social to do it it's kind of another form of pr um so it's kind of obvious that it was going to happen um and yeah i mean we definitely caught it at the right time we were one of a handful in the uk who started around that time and all of them have done well um you know we built the business over a course of about five or six years and then we, we obviously sold it last year which is great but I think we did manage to strike at the perfect time, um, especially given we were still at university. We had very little risk in terms of starting this business, and um, I can't actually think of another business that would have gone as well with the similar setup that we had. I
0: think often kind of timing is key, right? More recently, um, you focused on a new sector, really something quite quite different with Searchland.
1: Yeah, so Searchland is basically a, a way for property developers to find land. Typically, that will be off market. So you'll be going to directly to a landowner and saying, hey, do you want to sell me this land or part of this land for me to build new homes or commercial units, whatever it might be. And yeah, it's a very different sector to what I've been in, in the past, obviously. But Um, For me, it kind of made sense. I've always been interested in property, um, mainly through my parents, actually. When I exited the the very first company, the first thing my dad said to me was, right, let's buy a house, let's buy some property, let's get investing there. So naturally, kind of my interest there grew. And when um, when Covid hit, actually, is, is when Searchland kind of started, I basically had a load more time from not commuting in and out of London, gained an extra probably three hours a day from travel time and decided to put it towards a side project that would help me find more property deals. And yeah, built it for myself initially, probably spent about two months on it and had kind of an initial product that I was kind of using for myself or also just did it for fun and then happened to to meet up with some old friends who saw what I was building and obviously knew a bit more about the space than me. Um, And they basically said this is kind of ripe to be turned into a, a big business which wasn't really my vision at the start. It was purely a side project, but when I did address the market and looked at it all, I thought, yeah, they're definitely right. So we built out a more comprehensive product over the course of about six to to eight months, um, and then ended up launching the business properly and got our first customers in January, 2021, I believe
0: yeah that that um, that is incredible right because if you think about it it's it's such a different business but but the common theme is i guess that because of things that you were doing in your in your personal life you were aware that there was a big problem to solve and the problem is something that 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 wouldn't just be impacting other people's personal lives but also businesses that would need you know services a bit like Searchland. so um yeah it sounds like you know it's that thing where you want to sort of scratch your own itch i think they say in the states sometimes and you develop very quickly a deep understanding of the problem and then there's a secondary step you're understanding that that there's real commercial value in solving that and having it packaged up as a platform that many businesses would seek to license
1: i think that property is also one of those industries where the more you get to know about it the more problems you see in it um you know planning the the planning process in the uk as an example there's so many issues and, and risk factors in there that developers have to deal with that there's Always going to be an opportunity to help, um, you know. Until that gets that gets fixed and the whole process gets um, smoothed out, I mean, the UK has a housing target of three hundred thousand a year, and we we're always behind that, like five miles behind that. So there's big opportunity, and there's a legitimate real world impact to solving it, um, which is obviously that we have more homes and the housing market kind of stabilizes. We have less um, less people in in social social housing, etc. So yeah. A big problem and really exciting place to be
0: yeah because actually i think i think sometimes you know prop tech um people miss there's this social and ethical basis behind the fact that you know if you compare the uk where where we both are to other markets in the world like you know, property prices are insanely high uh, millions of people are, are excluded from home ownership and the government has, has has not been able to really make a dent in it i mean they're, they're massively behind those those uh figures that you cited earlier mitch um so so yeah any any tech innovation that can open that up and really drive change and allow people who would otherwise be excluded to be included in, in this world of ownership of property uh, is really really is a big social good
1: yeah definitely i mean the, the government do a lot with you know helping out first-time buyers reducing taxes here reducing taxes there etc but fundamentally you know the economics is basic it's supply and demand if there's not enough housing then the market is going to continue to rise and more and more people are going to be excluded from purchasing homes and less and less people are going to be able to find homes to live in etc so yeah the problem does need to be solved from the source and um that's kind of what we're helping helping do
0: yeah 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 it's fantastic like like i think businesses that, that that have a kind of social ethical goal as well it's always it's always good right we see that a lot more in our group and uh um certainly certainly when it comes to hiring a FD or CFO, I think. I think if your business has got some social good, it's a lot easier to get people engaged in the project and uh, bring in really, really talented people. Mitch, um, so this is all super interesting, right? Right, you've had an unbelievably exciting entrepreneurial journey right you've you've done some incredible things that, that many founders would take a couple of decades to do and done it in much less time than that uh the one thing that when we chatted uh last week was really clear is that there's typically been a pivot in the journey of your businesses and actually from the view of the FD or the CFO those pivots where there's sort of data to be analyzed and things to be understood they can be really key in terms of allowing the business to become what it. Can be and to really achieve scale. So I'd love just to pick away and um, peel peel back some of those layers and really understand the kind of pivots that uh, you've been through with uh, Fanbytes and more recently Searchland.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. I'll kick off with a, a Fanbytes one. Um, well, there's actually two two in Fanbytes. The um, the first one was which we did throughout was just swapping from platform to platform. So. We, when we launched, we were very focused on YouTube as our main platform. We were, we were signing up influencers from YouTube and we were targeting brands with YouTube campaigns pretty much exclusively. And then as kind of we went on, we realized that it was really competitive. A lot of people in the YouTube space um, and, you know, influencers were working directly with brands, et cetera. It was a space that brands were starting to understand more and more. You know, YouTube's been around for, for many years at that point so when we saw the rise of snapchat we decided we would pivot basically the whole company all of our branding all of our marketing around snapchat and i think you know within a couple of months basically 80 percent of the business we were doing was through snapchat that was kind of the first time we pivoted platform and around that time we decided we would rebrand the marketing that we were kind of a gen z partner rather than just a influencer marketing platform or influence marketing agency we were the the place you would go if you want to target gen z um and that kind of continues throughout the life cycle of the business because then when tiktok exploded and started growing up we then pivoted again and i think it like similarly within a few months about 80% of the business was done through tiktok and that was purely because we had to follow the audience that we were trying to target or helping these brands target um and that was kind of just a lesson in if you're going to target a particular audience you have to go where that audience is going to be and that's something that we understood and we kind of helped the brands understand, you know, we're talking about big brands here. We're talking about like Nike, Adidas and um, Burger King, et cetera. You name it. Some of the biggest brands in the UK or well, in the world, um, they would use us to basically tell them where they should be spending their money.
0: Yeah. That's, um, that's really insightful. So when I think that through, right, the, the, there must've been moments where it was unclear that say, um, tick Right. It, it might have been unclear to you whether that was going to be a platform people were going to stay on for years or they were going to stay on for months and something would come behind TikTok and there'd be a new thing after that. Like, Were you ever concerned that the, the investment you had to make, the, the, the risk you took to go onto a new new platform, were you ever concerned that you might be picking the wrong platform and it might be a misjudgment?
1: Uh, I wouldn't say so. I think it was kind of built into the um, DNA of the business, in that we were ready and prepared to switch and pivot when necessary. You know, social media is so fast moving, and it's kind of the opposite of the industry I'm in now. Um, it's so fast moving; things are changing all the time. There was a point in which, um, when Trump was president, he was talking about banning um, Snapchat in the U.S., and we were, you know, stressing about that, and it was that was a whole issue, but under like, the way the business was built, we were prepared to switch at the drop of a hat. You know, we had new platforms that were coming out even after um, TikTok or just before TikTok, platforms like Triller, which is still going on. Um, it's kind of a similar short form video app for those who don't know. Um, and we were looking at them all the time. We were prepared to make that switch if we saw the tides were turning. And it wasn't a case where we would lose a load of brand equity in, in bites if we did that because brands understood that you know we were there to be at the forefront of where Gen Z were going. If that happened to be TikTok one day and then they'd move back to Snapchat the next, brands would expect us to be on top of that and we would be the first movers. Um, so I think it actually helped us, if anything, that we were able to, to pivot and switch so fast.
0: And that's almost kind of building your business with a substantial amount of flexibility as part of the model, right? You, you were building something that was intentionally going to flex between different platforms. And perhaps it wouldn't matter if... All of your audience were on one platform, or they were spread across ten platforms. You were always prepared to be on to to, to be deploying your technology on essentially whichever platform people were going to go to.
1: Yeah, exactly. And the only the, the other the other pivot in in Fanworks that we had was a uh, a move away from self service. When when I was when I first started, um, we first like building the company, we built a platform that was fully self-serve. So brands would sign up, pay us a monthly fee, and then run campaigns um, for themselves. And we very quickly realized that the value we were able to extract from the agency side of the business, where we would manage the whole process, was just far higher than the self-serve model. And I think that, um, I mean, we, we were still young at this point. In hindsight, I think the self-serve model could definitely have been a success. It would have just been a very different type of business. Um, you know, a business where we're talking about MRR, ARR, et cetera, and we're trying to grow the business in a different way. Um, I think it would have involved raising more money. I think it would have involved um, a different sales strategy. Um, and I think that it it wouldn't have been right given the kind of structure of the business. But that was a pivot that we decided to make about a year and a half to two years into the journey.
0: Yeah, and and how did that change the sort of culture of the business, right? Because if you suddenly have to have like account managers for these individual Brands, you presumably yeah. kind of ramp the headcount quite significantly. You've got a whole department that you never had before. Were, were there sort of cultural changes that needed to be managed?
1: Uh, I think it would be kind of crazy to say that the culture changed because we were about five people at this point, including the th- the three founders. So. <laughs> <laughs> so you yeah. know, the was we, we were all friends and, and everything at that point. So there wasn't much to change. Um, I think that's something just quite key about the way we built the company as well. We were super lean from the beginning. You know, I don't think we made our first hire until maybe twelve to eighteen months in. So super super lean, which enabled all of the flexibility and us to make decisions that fast, et cetera. So when we did decide to drop the self serve, nothing really changed. We just stopped offering it as a service. And we pushed everyone updated the decks to remove that from there, and pushed everyone down the agency route. Yeah, it's really
0: interesting. Let, let's let's talk about the point that you just flagged there, Mitch. Lean right. So so we we definitely encounter um, founders that have the ability to go to VCs early on and do very substantial seed rounds so actually somebody that i was talking to on the phone yesterday uh their founder has raised i think seven million seeds which is very impressive uh but it does mean that they're only just signing their first customers they're probably 20 30 people and still growing um and they've got a fairly substantial shareholder that that, 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 that needs to be uh, looked after as well. Uh, and yet your model is the opposite of that. It's to stay small, not take on too much external capital, uh, and to sort of build in that window in a completely different manner, in a much leaner manner. What? How do you see the pros and cons of those things?
1: Yeah, I think that, I mean, there's a lot to that question because it really does depend on the type of business that you're trying to build. Um, for me, I always look at it from a, a risk factor. Um, you know, if I if we were to go out and raise a large amount of funding before we found product market fit, then you're just exposing yourself to a large amount of risk where you don't manage to find product market fit. Um, obviously, everyone loses their money or at least you have to raise more money at a lower valuation or whatever it might be. And that whole process just becomes a lot messier um, because You'll lose a bit of the ability to pivot fast. Um, you'll have plenty of down months when you have to change because the audience isn't responding the way you thought they would, et cetera. So the way that um and Searchland was built is we reached product market fit with exclusively with the founding team um, and got our first customers on board, um, built it to a point where we were ready to say, yeah, if we raise money now, we know exactly where it's going to go and we know exactly what it's going to be spent on in order to deliver these growth targets and a very kind of predictable way. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, if you raise a large seed round, um, you might have a very clear idea of where you want to spend it. Um, typically specifically like if your business involves, um, well, I, I know of one business, for example, their business is a, is a roll up strategy where they will basically acquire other companies. Obviously, if you're going to do that, you can't, unless you raise funds um so in that situation it kind of makes sense that you're going to raise money go out acquire these other companies combine them together and then end up with a higher multiple at the end but i think that typically for first-time entrepreneurs or you know people who are earlier on in their journey and don't know specifically what they're going to do with the money finding product market fit is the most valuable thing you can do
0: essentially you've got to form a view early on is the journey towards the product market fit being achieved is that a capital intensive one if it, if it probably isn't, then maybe it's just you and the founding team just putting in the hours uh, and 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 you can genuinely be lean. Um, but that won't be the case for everybody. There might be plenty of businesses who are, I don't know, developing some AI or something, and, and they would need a couple of mil in order to be able to reach that first customer.
1: Yeah, exactly. So that, that's what I'm saying, that it really does depend on the business. Um, and you know, VCs or investors do understand that. So when you are raising a round, they'll probably you know, value your business very differently um there's you know there's a lot of jokes around there saying that um when you reach profitability you're kind of you're, you're not as investable as when you um aren't at profitability and for some cases in certain businesses that's true because growth is the most important metric um so yeah i think that it really does depend on the business you're building and how you're going about it what investors you're speaking to your level of experience um so there's no one-size-fits-all, but just for me and in my experience, I've preferred to reach product market fit.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interesting. And and as you made progress with Searchland, did you seek to be equally lean with Searchland or were you more inclined to accept that that, that, that might need some capital early on? How, how did your kind of decision framework roll out with the experience with Bandbytes?
1: Yeah, so I mean, my experience from Fanbytes was invaluable in the building of Searchland. So we did start out super lean. Um, we're actually a founding team of four in Searchland um, myself, Hugh, Arthur, and Archie. Three of us are technical, which has just allowed us to build the product, well, with no outside capital initially. Um, yeah, the first um, iteration of the product we built, we sold, and I think we had about seven or eight thousand in, um, it might have been 10,000 in MRR by the time we raised any outside capital. And then that first round of outside capital was from um, family and friends, basically. So we raised, I think it was 120,000, maybe 150,000 from angels. Um, And that was purely just to have some cash in the bank so that we could hire a few people without worrying about, you know, if we have a few down months, we're not gonna be able to make payroll, et cetera. So, you know, we didn't make our first hire until 12 months into the journey or more than 12 months into the journey. and then at that point, once we built the sales function, that was the main like priority for me was get the sales function in place so that we know we can predictably sign customers. Um, and then as soon as we got that, we re- went out and raised a larger round um from a VC. Um, so we raised in total two, 2 well, in total we raised two point five million. Um and that's when we really put put the gas down. And we've grown from, you know, about six people, and we're now 28 people. Um, and that's all happened in the span of about 12 months so as soon as we found that product market fit and defined the processes we just went you know gung-ho and, and trying to grow as quick as we can
0: yeah amazing so that that is really interesting to hear you talk about the framework as to the period where you wanted to still be lean the fact that a bit of angel capital but 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 frankly not not a huge amount of money was was appropriate just to give you a buffer so you could hire a few people and then once you've got like the product market fit really really clear in people's minds then vc is game on um that's a very interesting framework i think a lot of people listening would find that helpful uh, and with with searchland have you also had to make a pivot early on like have you had a similar experience where there were some data points that that, that indicated a few things might might end up being different for the final business model
1: yeah so a couple of pivots one of them I would say it was just a mistake uh, on our part, which I think a lot of people make, which is around pricing. Um, we just priced ourselves too low. Um, we went into the industry um, looking at competitors and thinking, right, we're just going to charge less and we will get all their customers and it'll be great. The problem with that is that you know it's not just about price when it comes to these types of products. It's about the the value that you drive um, on the back end, and actually you're devaluing the product when you charge so much less because you aren't able to offer the level of support that users require and you end up signing customers that frankly you, you don't always want um like they'll churn etc so that was the first thing we did we changed our pricing pretty much within the first like 4 months um we had a price plan that was about 30 pounds a month and we just scrapped it entirely and changed the pricing structure um and yeah you know, i don't know if that's necessarily a pivot but it was a big change um, in the way the business ran and it meant that we no longer um allow people to sign up on their own and trial on their own. Everything was a bit more hands on and we would explain the value, show them exactly how for their business they could extract value from the business. Um, I think, yeah, like I said, a very similar mistake other B2B SaaS businesses make.
0: That point on pricing is, uh, something that I've, I've certainly seen a fair bit. I've, I've been in businesses where I was the CFO and I was challenging the business on their pricing. And you'd look at probably, uh, product that had been in the market three or four years. And maybe the business would believe that they could lift the price, but they would consider like a 20% or a 30% price increase would be substantial. And there'd be real fear in even making that, price change and actually what i realized over time was that many of these businesses have come in so low on their pricing early on just to ensure the product market fit has been evidenced that actually you shouldn't be talking about a 30 percent price increase it should probably be a 300 percent price increase that you're talking about it's very interesting to hear that that, that, that you essentially say well actually maybe we shouldn't offer the, the the most economic tariff at all and it should really just be these much more lucrative options
1: yeah exactly i mean our, initially we had the pricing at i think it was like 30 pounds 70 pounds 100 pounds a month or something and now our lowest price is, is 100 pounds a month and you know we, we've done a lot to the product and we've added uh, so many new features and now we've got a price plan that starts at 450 a month and that's kind of our, our top tier and that's like per user so very different structure um we, we do have a handful of people still on the old structure some some people paying like 40 pounds a month and a couple of users on there which is you know grandfather pricing at its best but um thankfully that's a very very small percentage of our customer base
0: yeah yeah and 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 you see that in a lot of businesses but but often you find that those people are the strongest advocates so whilst you couldn't put a new customer onto the same tariff that that, that, that they're on you might find that they're telling five or ten of their friends or colleagues in the same space about your product every year. And so they kind of are paying for themselves in marketing capability, shall we say?
1: Yeah, yeah. And then the other the other pivot that I've kind of been through research then was around the the sales strategy. Um, So like I said, once we've kind of found product market fit, the main thing we wanted to do was find a repeatable way to sell the the product. and I'd say for the first kind of 24 months, we were exclusively driven off inbound. Um, so people coming to us, word of mouth, et cetera, um, a few paid um, paid media sources, et cetera. But we really wanted to build an outbound system. So, you know, it's kind of typical for B2B SaaS. You have your SDRs and they feed demos into your BDMs or AEs or whatever you call them. Um, and then they sell and you have a very kind of predictable pipeline if sdr's book x number of demos goes to the bdms etc and that's something we it was kind of january this year we started building that out um and that was quite a big shift for the business because um a lot of our sales had never done any outbound they'd been purely driven off inbound um for the first kind of 12 months of their job um and it was a bit of a shift to get that kind of change happening um and now thankfully everyone sees the value because about 40 to 45 percent of our business is now outbound but that pivot um was actually one of the harder ones that i've ever had to do um because it involved changing people's roles which is never easy
0: and that and that type of story where uh you need to do quite a substantial reorganization of your sales team and and probably need to hire different people right because sometimes you can have a really great salesperson that's taking inbound and what they really are is a really good order taker right you know the the kind of fish is jumping into their net more than them having to go and fish to catch the fish uh but the outbound people they need a lot more resilience and a slightly different sales pitch and it can be quite a big change for the sales team to have to take that, that 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 type of restructuring
1: yeah yeah exactly and we definitely experienced that when we went through it but I think that what it's led to is a much more predictable business which means that we you know when we went through the, the vc process and we had the, the sales forecasts etc i was baking in the fact that we would have this outbound in there and it allowed me to predict the business much easier because if you are entirely reliant on inbound then i mean not so much for for searchland it's not so seasonal but there are definitely periods where you know you have lulls and inbound and you're reliant on this word of mouth, which you have no control over, really. Um, you can put out content, et cetera, which everyone should be doing. But for predictability, I don't think you can beat the outbound processes.
0: Yeah, that that makes sense. And, you know, we should talk a little bit about um, financial roles, right? So so most of your businesses have been um, kind of fairly early on and, and, and you haven't had to reach the stage where you needed a full-time head of finance or finance director or something like this but you are beginning to reach that window research land i mean how have you thought about the way that your first finance hire would come in and the kind of capabilities that you'd be looking for from that person and the kind of things they would take off your plate
1: yeah so i I think that like you said the businesses i've run in the past we've not had that cfo in place um in the in fanbikes ambrose kind of filled that role with our forecasting etc which was Useful um, to a degree, but we didn't see it necessary to have a fully blown model build out built out. Even though that would probably have been useful, um, but I think that for starting out, you know, a simple cash flow forecast that you put together yourself with a few um, estimations and whatever, just to predict out that model is is enough. I think that when you start to scale and you need kind of a predictable headcount growth and you need to model out a particular go-to-market strategy, especially if you're gonna like, pivot that go-to-market strategy, then that's when you need a CFO, or at least an interim CFO to be there to build that model and using you know, historic data you've got, putting in frankly their experience as well of what is realistic and what will happen. And that's when I think it, it becomes necessary. Um, actually, you know, last week when we spoke, I mentioned that um, I was actually looking to to hire a freelance CFO or interim CFO to build out that model for Searchland. Um, just because we are at a point now where I want to know if we bring on another BDM or we bring on two more SDRs, what does that do to our runway? Will we, you know, go down for a period and then will we be looking healthy in 12 months' time? How aggressive can I be in hiring this sales team? Similarly, in the marketing side, you know, we are still driving a lot of inbound. If we were to invest in that, how much should I be investing, et cetera. So answering questions like that is when you start to need a professional, um, doing it. Um, and I think the other side of it is also depending on the type of business you run, if you're running a, a kind of high risk business, so that for example, the, the business you mentioned raising 7 million seed, I would assume they have a fairly high risk strategy, um, of spending and deploying that money. Um, Otherwise, the the VC is not going to give you 7 million pounds and say, yeah, spend it over the next seven years. They'll say, what's the next milestone? How aggressive are you going to be to get there in 18 months or whatever? At that point, I think you need a a CFO or someone with that experience to model that for you and show you month by month um, whether you're going to be on track or not. Um, So yeah, it's a level of um, risk and it's kind of a decision based on the business you're running, but typically the businesses I've been involved in it's up until the point where you need predictable growth and a forecast that's when they need a cfo
0: yeah that's that that's interesting and i think certainly vcs see that you know there's there's a point in time where they're trusting quite substantial sums of money into a team and they're looking for somebody to give the most sort of objective and insightful view on the numbers and 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 whether the numbers are validating that this business is going to go where people hope it's going to go i think that that often is one of the first asks of a finance hire and a startup uh and for sure your point around um roi break even point and return on all of those components in your sales and marketing machine be it more sales people more bds more marketing spent uh i think any any experienced fd or cfo worth their salt will be able to kind of like understand the business within a month or two and build out that type of model so that you've got that down and you know what you should expect to see if those those incremental people are really working out. Um, So yeah, it's sort of very interesting, very interesting views there, Mitchell. And we could talk all day about um, how to break through these early stages, how to build out the team and the value add that you get from uh, finance people. It might be interesting just to... um, sort of circle over as our final point uh what what you think the future could be for Searchland? i mean you know if it if it were to be something that that achieved huge scale like what what elements would we see on the roadmap in two or three years time like what what's what's the biggest future you could foresee
1: well i think that at the moment the mission is pretty clear around helping solve that housing crisis helping to deliver more homes and in terms of Things we build and products we release—it's all going to be focused around that. How do we enable businesses, i.e., developers or construction firms in the UK, to deliver more more homes? And then, you know, as as time goes, firstly, I imagine that's a lofty goal. It's not like we're going to reach that within a year. So there's going to be many years of product development and changes in order to do that. Um, And then, you know, we will start looking internationally as well um, at opportunities where similar things are going on in. That are going on in the UK, which to be honest is is most of the the world. Um, there's like housing shortages in all major major cities and major civilizations. So I think that that's kind of the the horizon that we're looking at. And also to reach that level of scale you're talking about, you would need to go international. Um, that's one of the caveats with a business like Searchland, which is a bit more localized. Um, you know, each geography we go to, there is a level of setup cost to do that. Um, gathering data, building out new products, understanding their local laws, local legislations, uh, etc. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not something that businesses haven't done before. There are other international real estate prop tech businesses. Um, so that's kind of the horizon we're looking at, but maybe a few years out.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Because Because I think probably the construction industry is one of the ones that has not been easily dragged into the age of deploying, you know, technology in 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 every case where it could be deployed. And so, you know, something a bit like Searchland that, that, that allows them to much more, you know, quickly and readily identify um, plots or sites that would be suitable. Um, essentially, you're making the whole industry more efficient, but, but but you're also making the whole industry more inclined to behave like a tech business.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's actually something we say to our customers as well is that don't think of yourself as a developer. Think of yourselves as kind of a sales machine or a marketing engine, where you're fu- you're feeding at the top of the funnel by the sites that you find, and then you're speaking to x percentage of them. X percentage show interest. X percentage then go to offer, and then you end up with a, a small part of the at the bottom, which is the ones you actually purchase. And you need to keep that funnel running all year round. Otherwise, you know your business will dry up. Um, but it's very similar to all tech businesses in that way. Um, and yeah, that's a level of education um, that we have to undergo with our customers.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I, I think often like businesses that have got, got like a really lofty goal, part of the goal is is, is it's not just to be the best business that, that you can be, but to, to essentially transform other people's businesses in your ecosystem so that they behave more like a tech business and they can be bigger and more efficient, more scalable. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic objective, uh, Mitch. Um I'm excited to hear about Searchland. I know you and I could talk all day about these topics. Thank you very much for coming on and talking so openly about your quite incredible founding career uh, and best of luck with things at Searchland.
1: Awesome. Thank you very much for having me on, Guy. It was really enjoyable. And um, if anyone has any questions, they can obviously reach out to me on LinkedIn um, or drop me an email.
0: Mitch, we'll make sure that people can find your contact details and your LinkedIn in the sleeve notes of the podcast. You were listening to CFO Insights brought to you by Startup CFO. If you're a finance professional working in disruptive tech and would like to join our global network, visit our website startupcfo.tech to learn more. This podcast was part of our CFO Insights series of discussions. And if you want to learn more about the Startup CFO group, follow us on LinkedIn to learn more about our community and the upcoming events. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast.